Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to John 13. We'll be looking at a few different texts this morning, but this will be mainly where we're at the most of the time here. Uh, we just got back yesterday from um, an elder retreat, a uh, good time the last two nights and, and spending time together uh, as the five of us together. Spent some time in quiet solitude, uh, really good just reading scripture, praying, spending time alone, even writing down our own thoughts about where uh, we've been and what's going on this year, and just spending time alone with God, trying to have some silence. And if I can just throw it out, uh, we, you should do that. It is a very helpful thing to do to, to quiet yourself before the Lord, uh, not to meditate and hum, uh, but to hear not only the scriptures, but even the racing of your own soul and what things you're preoccupied with. It's a wonderful time, and we, we did this um, as we, we spent time before the Lord alone. Uh, we also spent time, man, looking back at 2019, being so thankful for the things that God has done. Uh, I'm looking forward to 2020, uh, a little bit of planning, the challenges and directions where we're going. Spent time uh, praying for you, the members of Cornerstone Bible Church, um, man, we, uh, we, I, had, I had slated like an hour, and we went to, I think, almost two over several different sessions. Um, so your pastor spent time loving you and taking you before the throne. Um, so we, we, we are very thankful for what God is doing. Spent time um, discussing some specific theology. Spent a good bit of time studying the Word together. This is the, the cabin we went to. Um, nice and open, great place to be away. Um, spending some time around the dinner table together, um, these dear brothers, spending time reading, studying the word together, um, John reading there, I think maybe Caleb's asleep, not really sure, um, but a wonderful time to be together, um, and we're very thankful for those who knew about it and were praying for us, we thank you, we're so thankful that your prayers are effective in working grace even for our sake, for the sake of the body and building it up, like we've talked about, so uh, we praise God for that. It was a good time to grow together, uh, rest a little bit, set the direction for 2020, um, and we, we just, we're thankful. So let's do this. Before we get going, let's, um, we'll read John 13. We'll get 31 through 35 is where we'll be today, um, and we'll pray, and then we'll get going. So let me start in verse 31. When he'd gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to you, the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you, both in our singing, but we desire so much that our hearts and our lives would be to the praise of your glory. 
We humbly come to your word today desiring to hear from it and to be changed. Uh, And we realize that only you through your Holy Spirit's work can transform us. So we ask that you would do the renewing work uh, in our minds. We ask that through this you would capture our hearts and that we would love you and others with the love that, that you have lavished on us. We thank you for your grace and mercy and your work in otherwise hopeless people. We ask for your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm not sure if you're one that uh, has or perhaps had those inspiring posters on your wall that would have like a a big word, courage, and then some unintelligible sentence underneath of it. Um, Or you like the daily calendar, the flip, like encouraging sayings and uh, words of wisdom throughout the years. Uh, But I find it really ironic that so many of these statements are good in and of themselves, but then if you look through the ages and different people's philosophy, you'll have another philosophy and word of wisdom that seems to be almost exactly against it. Uh, And somehow this irony really works itself out in the universe. Something like, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, And yet, we all know the phrase and have perhaps experienced it, out of sight, out of mind. (laughs) Like, these things can somehow work together, not sure. Um, Or you may have heard, um, opposites attract Um, And then the same day, you'll hear birds of a feather flock together. Like, I'll scratch my head about this. Who's making these things up, you know? Really? Like, I don't don't know if I want to listen to all this worldly wisdom. Um, And many of these contradictions, if we're honest, though, they're not really contradicting each other. They're making statements about the world that that, that often are true. Uh, They're not, like, unequivocally true, but they're helpful for us in some different scenarios. Um, One of the ones I've heard lately, and and, and it kind of poses a good question for us today. Uh, Again, it's not like I have this on a a pillow somewhere or anything like that, but I've seen it, but I've kind of heard this over and over. Much of the world will tell us that it's not what you do, it's who you are that really counts. But I've heard the exact opposite true as well. Baloney. (laughs) It doesn't matter who you are, it matters what you do that really counts. And when we come to the Bible, it actually cuts through both of those things to help us understand that these two ideas actually coincide and work well together. That it's true, it helps us to understand that both who you are and what you do uh, are really important, and it works well together. The Bible has been teaching us, for a Christian, who you are, or the Bible calls it as a calling, a Christian calling, uh, is a gift from God. It's something that he does in us. You know this from Ephesians, that you were dead. You were spiritually dead. You did nothing to bring yourself and put yourself on God's team. But rather, he made you alive, and he called you out of that darkness into his glorious light, that of Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that it's a gift to us, this calling. But the scriptures also exhort us to live and work and do according to who we really are. So it encourages us to do something but it always grounds it in the fact that God has already done something in this gift of making us who we are. First comes God's work and giving us an identity. Next comes his work in us and on us and the mystery of our own obedience as we walk and do according to his commands by his Holy Spirit's work and his power. It's amazing. Uh, in Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling that he has called you. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul prays for the Christians. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God, 
would make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good that you have and every work of faith by his power. These things that you and I know to do and want to do and have these desires to do what is right, he's praying that God would work that out and that they would live according to the calling that he's given to them so that these, this identity and what they're doing work together. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, Paul says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. He can't help himself. He just keeps on going. Encouraged, charged, exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All these passages help us understand that we are to live or we are to do or we are to act according to our identity, who we are. Uh, we'll find that this very truth is at play and enters our discussion here when we're talking about Christian community. Last week, we spent kind of a part one working on it. And when we think of community, now to part two, we recognize that we're going towards the next part. Like, what should we think about what it should be? We tore things down last week a bit, and we're going to actually go back and say, how can we build an understanding that's biblical about this? Now, when you and I think about community, we think about a group of people, rightly so, and that group seems to have some sort of identity that's based in the makeup of the people. Either they're like each other or they're all agreeing to some sort of identity. But then they're also usually a group that has common goals or they're trying to do something together that they wouldn't be able to do separately. And this community both is and has an identity, but also works itself out in action as well. Uh, we are having the conversation uh, about this very thing. And this is exactly how we should begin to look at the church not like another organization, because if we think about this one, we're not quite like that. The Christian community is far more like a family. And what I mean by that is not the feels. What I mean by that is that you were born into the family whether you wanted to or not. You don't get a choice about who your brother and sisters are in the family. Um, this was either last week or the week before. My four children and Kristen and I were sitting around the table getting ready for family devotions. We started talking about different things that were coming up, and the older kids obviously get to do more things than the younger kids do, right? It's, like, it's not right right now for this young kid to be able to do this thing, and so on and so forth. We started talking about birth order, and that Afton is the oldest, and then Ian came along, and then Hudson, and then Evelyn. And as this conversation was happening, like I could see frustration and anger building in some of my younger children, and one of them, uh, he or she responded... Um, with the fact and very upset in the question that he wasn't chosen to be the firstborn. Like, how could we be so cruel as to treat him or her this way? Now, <laughs> we explained as best we could, with limited things, uh, that we really didn't have anything to do with it and that they would have to take it up with God. And that was the best way to handle this. Our, our, our kids when they start to realize this, they realize they're placed in a family that they didn't get to choose. And generally, I think my children love their siblings, um, but there's sometimes when they resent being in that group of people, which, which brother or sister that they have, and they wish they would have been put in a different family. I love it when I go over to here because it's not the same, and I wish I had different parents and all this kind of stuff. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that ever said something like that. Um, but this idea is instructive for us. It's a good example. It reminds us that we don't choose our brothers and sisters in Christ either. Um, the Lord Jesus does. That's this wonderful thing. That's crazy. Like you ought not to ever complain 
because Jesus himself chose who your brothers and sisters would be. And, and if, if, if it's good enough for Jesus, I think you ought to be okay with it. We ought to. We don't get to decide to have new siblings in Christ, except that we witness and call them to this, but we can't make a dead person alive. It's impossible for us to do that. It must be Jesus Christ himself that would bring this person into this family. And we know he does so. We've been placed in this family with his people for his purposes, for joy and for true holiness in him. But as much as Christian community is like a family, part of one another in this way, an identity, this does not give us the option to simply take the last name without acting like a family member. Take the last name without acting like our father. Um, we just read all these verses that exhort us to live according, if I can say it this way, to live according to our family name, to live according to the family that we are in, to do what we are, like you've been made this and now we are to live that out. The Christian community is not exactly like the family in the way that we think about it. First of all, because like we learned last week, we bring our own worldly philosophies of what the family should look like, and, and often they're wrong. Often they're just unbiblical. We can bring that right on top of the church and say, this is what a family is supposed to be like, without ever thinking about the fact what the Bible says a family is supposed to be like, specifically a church. Uh, most of our families, um, if we can think about this, the second thing here is that most of our experiences with families did not include a family calling or a family work job that you fulfilled. Many of us grew up in homes where we were created opportunities and we went out and did different things. And that was okay and good and right um, for the purposes and the best ways that God give us different gifts and maybe make another nuclear family or whatever thing that you were set out to do. And that's fine, but it's not what the church is called to be. That's not what we're looking at here. It's not that it's a sinful way to view the family, but it cannot be the way that we view the church. We have a family calling, a way that we are to work with one another, a way that we're to go about our lives with one another. Christ did not call us into this family to make sure that we get together and tolerate one another you know, a couple times for Christmas and a couple of the different holidays, and then go back about our own agendas and the things that we want to do. He called us to operate with one another. He's called us to totally reorient our lives around him, around Jesus himself, his wise leadership and his righteous commands that are for our good. And as we understand this, we begin to realize that our view of or Blueprint for Christian community has to be shaped by the one who made the Christian community and that we are not autonomous. It is not just up to us to, up, up to, us to figure it out. Now, last week we spent some time recognizing some of the worldly philosophies that we believe so easily and sneak into our identity and understanding what Christian community looks like. Many times we admit it's unknowingly. We, we, it just kind of creeps in there. We didn't even realize it was a stronghold. Um, we don't think that these subtle messages and propaganda, we don't think of them as uh, spiritual warfare, but they are. But they're consistently an outpost of resistance against God himself. Today, our goal is to look at the words of Jesus and to recalibrate our understanding of Christian community according to his expectations. So last week, we said, let's tear down those wicked philosophies or worldly ones that we don't even recognize in our own hearts about, about Christian community, 
But now we want to go to the Word and say, what does Jesus say about what Christian community is supposed to be like? We will find that at the core, Christian community looks like doing one another spiritual good. In a word, love. It will look like love. Christian community is not a place where we go to get something, where we go for the sole purpose to make sure our betterment is heightened, somehow we receive from this thing. But rather, Christian community is a series of obedient actions of love and giving to one another within, get this, within the family that God has placed us in, according to the love that we have received in Jesus Christ. So let's start out with that important distinction. This is not going to be popular, but I think this is very important for us. That's why we're having this whole discussion. We are to love the world with genuine care. We are to be on mission to love others and proclaim Jesus Christ. We are to be sincere in our kindness and love, and actually, as Jesus said and the Old Testament, to love our neighbor. But that is not Christian community. I'll say it again. Uh, when we think about this, we can be so easily, we think about it as a different thing. We are to love the world. We are to have genuine care for them, true kindness, love, willing to give ourselves for them, loving our neighbor as ourselves. But this is not Christian community. I realize that this sounds harsh, unloving, exclusive, but I'd like for us to hear how Jesus talks about this and concerning this distinction, what he has said about this, not what we came up with. There has been, um, never been a time where God has told us Christians, okay, now you can stop with the, uh, with the Great Commission. Now you can stop loving your neighbor as yourself. Now you can stop being salt and light. Now you can stop being a witness. Now you can stop proclaiming my name. Now you can stop loving the world around you. He's never said anything like that. And so we're not saying that this morning at all. I want to make sure we all understand what we're talking about here. We are to love the world around us. That is still true, every bit. When Jesus talks about it and makes the distinction, he's trying to make sure like everyone is your neighbor and you ought to love them in this way. But Jesus' words go like this. John 13, 31 through 35. As you look here, before we do that, let me give you a little context, right? Because it's not fair to drop right in. So a little context. Jesus has been proclaiming himself to the disciples. We get John's incredible book on who Jesus is and how he interacts in the Trinity. It's, it's mind-blowing. He is doing this over and over, but he's also trained them. He has served them, and he's done them much spiritual good. And now he's about to enter the Passion Week. He's headed to the cross. He's headed for his glorification, as John calls it. Now, we call it crucifixion and several other terrible things, which it is. But John's trying to make the point. If Jesus Christ didn't come as a person and die and be buried and rose again and glorified, we would never have the glory which we know as salvation. And when Jesus Christ did this, he received all glory. And so John talks about it in this way. You can see that also more specifically, John 12, 23. But if you read John, you're going to see him talk about glorify all the time. And he continues to reference his crucifixion. Chapter 13, though, it kicks us off with this understanding of Jesus taking care of his disciples in the one of the most humbling, glorious acts of service that can be performed. As Jesus prepares to return to the Father in all of his glory, having won salvation for his people, Jesus shows them an amazing act of humility 
and love. This act serves them physically in time and space. Like, it's real. They needed this. It was a good thing for them. But it also, more importantly, acts as a paradigm or an example for all the ways that Christ has served them and the way that he will serve them in the future. He washes their disgusting feet. Think about all the ways. John records this so coolly. That's not a real word, but what he does is makes us see that in this act, he is, you're summing up all that Jesus has done for his people. Consider for a moment, when he does this, he takes off his outer clothes. He takes the form of a servant. He gets down on his hands and knees to disgusting level. to the place no one else wants to go. He does the stuff that none of them were even supposed to be doing. He's lowering himself to serve them their disgusting, dirty feet and treat them better than himself. After this, we see that, of course, John is like, or Peter's like, don't watch my whole body, Lord. Do everything if that's what you need to do. That's fine. Um, because he starts to understand that this is Jesus' work. After this in this chapter, Jesus speaks of his betrayal. And if you look at 21 to 30, which you don't need to do, you're going to see this back and forth as he's saying, someone here is going to not only deny me, but betray me. And as this goes on, we watch as Judas slips out. And he begins to, if I can say it this way, start the engine that's going towards his crucifixion. He's beginning the Passion Week by letting him out of their midst. And now that glorification that we talked about, that crucifixion, that, talk, that clock is ticking down towards that end that he would be crucified. At this time, Jesus speaks to his disciples about this new commandment. Verse 31, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas that went out, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Jesus has set out for the cross, his glorification, his crucifixion. He tells them what's going to be happening. He tells them that his time has finally come. He will now bring glory to the Father, and he will receive glory in God himself immediately. He takes this time to tell them, I am going to be gone. I am going away. You're not going to see me like you've seen me before. I'm physically going to leave. You won't, you won't be able to find me in that regard. And because of all this, I want you to hear me loud and clear. You have to listen. You have to obey. I'm going to give you a new command. And by this command, he's going to do more than like, hey, I've got one more rule for you. That's kind of weird. He's actually going to set the expectation for the, what type of people they're supposed to be. So it's instructive in so many ways. By this time, we all, if we can consider this, we've gone through all this, we know what's going on. As the reader, we know where he's headed, and now he's ready to give us a new command. We're ready to hear it. In light of his impending death, the ultimate demonstration, of course, of his love for his disciples, he gives them the command to love one another. This command is supposed to be new, though, right? Like, I feel like I've heard this before. <laughs> Somewhere, right? Like, uh, you're right, you have heard it before, 
You heard it all the way back in the Pentateuch. Moses wrote it in Leviticus to help explain that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. In his context, he's given the law. He's saying, don't, make sure you don't take all of the grain. Keep the edges so that you can give that to the widows and the poor and the sojourner. Don't take all the grapes. Make sure that you can love your neighbor as yourself. You'd want to be able to take care of them. Also, Jesus proclaimed that after the number one thing, love God with your heart, soul, and mind, this is the second thing that all of the law and the prophets hang on. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And he shows us that if you will get the first thing right, loving God with your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself, everything else will take care of itself because it all hangs on that idea. The whole law is understood through this. So this, you know, my question, and is, is, isn't this the second greatest commandment, though? Isn't that what we're looking at here? Isn't that what it is? Well, sort of. Kind of. If I can say it this way for a moment, it's like a new declension of it. It's like a new subset of that true commandment that is still true. The second commandment is still true. But what he's doing here is a heightening. It's not just to your neighbor, to everyone. That's, what, again, what Jesus' point was. Remember, he's the whole Samaritan who comes along, and through that whole parable, he's saying, oh my goodness, who are you to, who's my neighbor? Everyone. Everyone in the whole world is your neighbor, so you ought to love them. Okay, so what's this new command about? In this new command, we actually have a heightening and a narrowing. I'll explain in a moment here. Jesus is saying, you must love one another just like I have loved you. First, there's this narrowing idea of the audience, of who he's talking to. It's not just all your neighbors anymore. What he is saying is Jesus is talking about the narrow audience that we find later is called the church. Those who love him are his disciples and who will do his will. He is saying that you need to love that group, those that are the one another's that we talk about when he says one another, he's talking about my group, those who love and trust me alone as king. But so that's the narrowing, right, in this command. In this command. But then secondly, there's a heightening of the standard. It's not the same thing that we saw back in Leviticus 19. It's not just a general love that allows for the poor to glean the edges of their fields or provides for the sojourner when they're less fortunate. The love that Jesus is talking about has a new standard, a new measurement, and it's enormous. It's incalculable. It is the standard that Jesus has the love for his disciples. How are you supposed to love? Like Jesus loves his disciples, that's how you're supposed to love one another. Impossible. <laughs> like, really? That's the new standard here. For our people, what you're supposed to do is, you know how I loved you guys? Yeah, you need to love one another the same way. This is the new command that I give to you. Consider in 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, that's good. But he continues, right? Just as I have loved you, you are also love one another. In light of Jesus' departure, these believers are called to love one another just like Jesus had loved them. They are certainly uh, a sorry substitute for Jesus. But are they? Like, I would think so. Like, man, we're not Jesus, right? Like, we can't really do that. Um, but if he promises that his Holy Spirit will be sent, if he promises his resurrection power in his people, and if he gives us the command that we must obey, that we are to love the same way that Jesus loved, is it legitimate that Christians will be able to love one another like Christ has loved us? Hallelujah, yes, this is true, guys. This is what we're called to actually do. It does, it's, 
It's a supernatural love. When we talk about Christian community, we're not talking about one other type of community. We're talking about a supernatural community that is based on the love of Jesus Christ that he has, which all of us continue to fall short of. The whole reason why we have to love God with our heart, soul, and mind and be connected to him first and foremost, the only way we could ever actually love our brothers and sisters the right way. In light of Jesus' departure, this is what he is calling us to do. The disciples are called to love each other in the same way that Jesus had loved them and had given himself for them. We could consider ourselves conduits or channels of his love for one another. We are commanded to love each other just like Jesus loves. And again, we say, that's impossible. And yet, it is commanded that this is the way the Christian community takes shape. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is the way that Christian community is supposed to act towards one another. Christ's followers are commanded not to stop loving unbelievers. They're not, he's not saying to them, now stop all your love for all your neighbors. He's not doing it. It's actually far more significant. He's saying, yes, continue that. Continue to love the world around you. But I'm telling you the new command. This community that I'm creating in myself, you are to love them like I have loved you. And this is a heightening and a narrowing like we're talking about for Christian community. A sacrificial, God-exalting love for their Christian brothers and sisters. And if we are tempted to think that the one another is speaking far more broad, like it's just anyone in the world, uh, he, he keeps us on the right path by giving us the next statement. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. There's something different going on here. If you have love for one another. He's making it very clear there's going to be a distinction because you, people at the one another's, are my disciples. And all the rest of the world will be able to see because some crazy way you love one another that's not like the love of the world. It's like the love of Jesus. And we stand here, a miraculous thing that God has given us and duty he has called us to, to love the way that Jesus loved. Think about that. He's leaving them. Jesus is leaving them. And now he is calling you and you and you and all of us to love the same way that Jesus loved his disciples. What a task. But doesn't it help us, it, it writes us, it helps us to understand what our task actually is and how to, we'd ever be able to accomplish this really could only be through the power of the Holy Spirit and understanding what it means to actually have Christian community when we define it in the terms that he is giving to us here. Jesus says this, this is how you'll do it and the, the world will know because you love one another. This is the distinction, the distinction that Jesus makes here, and we must also make this distinction. There is a way that only Christians can love one another that the world cannot. And this brings us to an important question, right? We have to ask this question. What kind of stuff makes up true Christian love? What was Jesus doing? How did he love the disciples and, and the church through his ministry? Well, John helps us out with this. We'll just stay in John. There's way more. Paul's got a bunch of stuff in Ephesians 4 that you should go and look there too. But John has helped us out here. Consider all the things that Jesus had said and done for his followers in his earthly ministry. Consider the thing in chapter 13 where we just were at here at the beginning. He serves them in love and humility throughout, of course, his whole ministry. But even here in this context, he is going to give us the final example of Christ-like love through washing the disciples' feet. He is showing us what it means to humble. I mean, 
There's no better picture of Philippians 2, Christ-like humility and love, than what Jesus is doing here. Ready to do these things for one another. Always looking out for the good of someone else. Esteeming someone else better than himself. What about the most significant thing that Jesus came to do? In his sacrifice on the cross, his glorification, as John talks about, his crucifixion. What does he do here? He humbles himself to the cross and gives them, us, his own life. This love is sacrificial and willing to give itself for the good of another. Um, but, but there's more than just that. Obviously, those like, that ought to be enough for us to rejoice and like, we understand how we ought to act. But there's more than that. It's not just the type of acts of mercy that are big and bold and incredible. And, um, it's certainly part of that. And, and, and Let me make sure you hear me. We should be doing those things. We should be loving our neighbors. We should be helping with money and relief and CPC and Union Mission and our neighbors. We should be involved in these things to love the world that God has put in, in, around us. Praise God, and we ought to be the best at it. But that's not what he's talking about here. Jesus gave himself to them. Think about John. Think about all the vivid word pictures that he calls himself. All of them are based on our need for something, right? You know this kind of stuff. He is the resurrection and the life. You're gonna die, everyone's gonna die. No, he's the resurrection and the life. You need him. He is the good shepherd for us dumb sheep. He is the word, the, the full revelation that we can't understand by ourselves. He is the word that completely gives us who God is. He is the light of the world in a dark world. He is the living water, the only thing that can satisfy our thirsty souls, by which if we drink of that, we will never thirst again. He's the bread of life, the one who actually is food for us to sustain and to nourish us. What he's doing is he's giving them, his disciples, us, that which we desperately need and we cannot obtain apart from him. Think about it. Jesus offers himself. No other Jewish leader, no other you know, religious guru ever offered themselves as truly able to win their soul and offer them eternal life. But Jesus, as at the heart of this, offers them himself. This last category here that we talked about, the fact that he would do this, is incredibly important for our understanding of Christian community. It helps us past maybe some of the things that we would, we would write a huge checklist of all the things that we could do to love one another. And they should include things like make meals for one another, uh, just have a good time together, uh, acts of service, raking leaves for one another. Those are blessings that we should do for one another. At the heart of Jesus' ministry, though, to his people is not raking leaves. At the heart of Jesus' ministry to his people is him giving them himself the thing that they most need. I think it's easy for us to agree that we want to show humility and sacrifice for others and give, but these are things that many other worldly benevolent, benevolent organizations can do. They can do those things, and some they do pretty well. We're thankful for those things, and we give to some of those things. The Salvation Army and Habitat for Humanity and other organizations of goodwill can bring aid and others to serve people and help them in their time of trouble. But none of them, none of them can bring the love of Jesus that he commands for his followers to do. None of them can minister grace to another person or intercede with the most powerful being in the universe on their behalf. 
can you consider what you have inside of you? None of the world's help organizations can give eternal hope and joy in the midst of continued crisis. They don't have the ability to do that. And so if we continue to keep that as the realm by which we love one another, we're not getting what Jesus gave to the world himself, the gospel. It is the most important thing that he came to do, not to heal, not to give bread out. He certainly did do those things, right? He, was, he understood Leviticus 19, but he did way more than that. He gave of himself something that no one else could ever give. No one else was righteous. No one else was the king of the universe. And he gave us himself. This is Christian love at the center of it. We, we, we don't need to apologize for that. That is the truth. The most important thing that we can do for one another is encourage this truth, the grace that comes in Jesus Christ. Only a believer can give the words of eternal life to another believer who's struggling, who needs to hear that. Only a believer can lead another believer back to the living water to drink and taste and see that he's good. Only a believer has a bond with another believer that transcends and is stronger than ideology, prejudice, language, skin color, you name it. That bond in Christ over, is over all of those other things. Only a believer has eyes to see and remind other believers of true reality and say, brother or sister, come back. Repent of this sin. This is, this is not right. It's not going to be helpful for you. you. You need to see what's true. You need to see what's right. You need to remember, have that 40 billion year view and find eternal hope and salvation and true joy. You see, when it comes to Christian community, Christ is what makes this community so distinct. Not the method by which we have our times together. Well, that's great, don't get me wrong, and we want to think about that. That's not what makes us so distinct. It is the spirit of the living God. And yes, we should absolutely love others through acts of kindness and service and have this as a regular outflow of who we are because it's still obeying, again, that second greatest commandment. Absolutely. We should be awesome at that. But you have something that every other well-run, well-resourced organization doesn't have. You have the spirit of God living inside of you. Now let's go real practical. If this is true, and we're supposed to love one another, and we're supposed to love each other the way that Jesus loved us, we ought to be aiming at these types of things. This is the groundwork. This is, like, this is just a foundation of where we can go now with love. But it helps us understand that at the center of this is actually giving Christ to one another. So things should be pretty simple from here. How, how do we do this? How about reading the Bible with or to one another and giving one another the words of life, the truth, the thing that continually writes us. As we read these things and as we give not our own spiritual or thoughtful advice or wisdom, give one another the word that the Spirit can use and constantly. This is the revelation of God. Here's another one. What about prayer? Like, again, I, I realize it's like, you just want to go back to like, read your Bible, pray every day, and grow, grow, grow. Absolutely. Like, get if, if this is what is helping us to understand that what we need is Christ at the center of this and that we have boldly the opportunity to go to before the throne, I'm getting excited, sorry. Um, go before the throne and ask him to do the work that you and I can't do, you better pray, brother or sister. This is for the good of the Christian community that we are part of. 
And it is much better and far more effectual than some of the things that we can do with our hands without Christ. And we ought not to turn to those things first. But we ought to turn to the word and prayer. And I'll just say one more thing. It's real simple. Sharing your life with one another. And I don't mean all things in common necessarily. I mean being willing to confess, being willing to submit, being willing to hear another brother speak or sister to speak into your life, being willing to actually have, again, our guard down and vulnerability to talk about the things that we struggle with and we need to be righted. The things that bring us back to Christ is king. Only a Christian community can properly right us. I recognize that um, we can easily get distracted by other things. Good things, really good things that we would do in a neighborly way. But can I encourage us to center on what Jesus said his community ought to center on, which is to love one another the way that he loved his disciples. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for your great love for us that we do not deserve, never could. And we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who's worked. I pray that you would work in your church. Would you build it? You promised to, and we glory in the fact that you will. But Lord, would we not do so with worldly philosophy, but rather, it's not, it's not trite to be back to the basics of loving Christ, giving the word to one another, praying for each other, sharing our lives together in Christ. Would we give and love the way that Jesus Christ loved us? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.